0: Hi, my name is Nicholas Jackson, and you are listening to Transit Lounge Radio in Berlin at the 15th Disruption Network Lab event, Dark Havens, Confronting Hidden Money and Power.
1: It's really wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me in the Transit Lounge, Nicholas. So you've actually written some really interesting books exploring exactly these topics about how the transnational corporations and the super wealthy hide their money and what kind of effect that has on society, the scenarios that you're looking at and why we should be concerned about them. My focus
0: is global finance and global financial systems and particularly tax havens. I used to work in oil-producing countries in Africa and I kept bumping up against tax havens and I never really knew exactly what they meant. I thought they were just exotic sideshows to the global economy. And then it was in about 2007, 2006, I came across somebody who used to be the economic advisor to the British tax haven of Jersey uh, called John Christensen. He laid out the offshore system of tax havens, how it works. He, he's an economist and I had never seen this analysis before. And I realized two things really. One, this system is much, much bigger and much more central to the global economy than I had ever imagined.
1: It's not just kind of mafia and celebrities, yeah?
0: No, exactly. I mean, people, I had this, you know, idea that, you know, corrupt. Angolans, a few of them chucking their money in and Nigerians and, you know, a few celebs and, and yeah, mafiosi. But what I, what I learned was that this system is really right at the heart of the financial system and has been right at the heart of the whole financial side of globalization since the 1970s. Not a sideshow, right at the center of it. Every multinational in the world has many, many subsidiaries in tax havens. Some of them have thousands of subsidiaries in tax havens doing all sorts of different things. Um, And the other thing that really struck me was that the tax havens weren't where I thought they were. Um, I had seen them as kind of, you know, tropical islands, you know, and there is that, and, you know, Alpine havens like Switzerland, and that was about it. But what he was telling me was that the biggest tax havens in the world are Britain and the United States.
1: That's actually kind of shocking to hear because I immediately think of, you know, the Cayman Islands or the Channel, like the Jersey Islands. And so how is this? how does it actually function that Britain and the U.S. are major tax havens?
0: Well, it, it's all about how, what a tax haven is. A tax haven, for me, there are lots of definitions about it. There's no agreement on what a tax haven is. But for me, it boils down to two words. One is escape and the other is elsewhere, somewhere else. So escape reminds you of the word haven Um, and the word elsewhere reminds you of the word word offshore. Um, So you escape somewhere else, you put your money somewhere else, and you can escape the rules at home that you don't like. And those rules might be, um, they might be tax rules. So if you're a multinational, you can put your money in Luxembourg and uh, use all sorts of fiendishly complicated structures, and you can escape paying tax.
1: But you also say it's not only about tax. Uh, I understand there's tax avoidance and tax evasion. One is more on the legal side and the other one Less legal, definitely illegal. Um, But you're also talking about there are other ways that these sort of tax havens function um, for the corporations that use them that also have a really – an effect on society that we might not even think of when we think of a tax haven.
0: Yes, so one of the the big themes of Treasure Islands was financial regulation. In both my books, Treasure Islands and the Finance Curse, I investigated how the City of London served as a kind of offshore financial playground particularly for Wall Street banks. So back in the in what's now known as the golden age of capitalism, after the Second World War, the roughly 25 years, quarter century, when finance was really bottled up, capital flows across borders were really tightly controlled, tax rates on rich people and on multinationals were very high. And this was also the period of strongest, broad, most broad-based economic growth in history. The bankers didn't like this, of course, because it crimped their profits. All these regulations, the Glass-Steagall regulation and all sorts of other powerful regulations were shrinking the financial sector, and they didn't like it. Wall Street found their escape route in London. They found this new market, which went by the name of Eurodollar, where they could go and do things they weren't allowed to do at home, particularly with respect to financial regulations. So uh, they piled into London, and this market in London grew explosively. And eventually by the 1970s, the strains were so great that the system that had held, there had been this international system called the Bretton Woods system, which was a cooperative international system agreed at the end of the Second World War between countries, between the United States and many other countries. Finance, when it's allowed to cascade across borders, is dangerous. And this is one of the reasons why we had a war in the first place. So we're going to constrain it. We're going to put all these rules in place, these capital controls and currency controls, things like that. So that finance is essentially bottled up inside your own country, and when that happens, policymakers get a lot more freedom to do what their populations want, without worrying about global finance sloshing in and sloshing out and, you know destabilizing their economies.
1: Because I, I imagine just in a sort of very simple terms that the money sort of stays in the economy in which it's created so that the, the finance is circulating within that society. Hopefully it's going into infrastructure, it's going into health and education, and it's not all being kind of siphoned out into a global offshore. You've talked about a spider network, which I really like that analogy.
0: <laughs> yes. I mean, that's basically it. The, the, when finance kind of was bottled up in countries, you wouldn't have a situation where the government would put in place a policy like you know, put a, a new strong banking regulation to curb some excess. Uh, you wouldn't have a situation where all the all the money would suddenly rush out of the country and go off to Hong Kong or Geneva or somewhere, um, and destabilizing the currency and causing all sorts of damaging effects. It would be bottled up, and so um, it was a much more stable system. So this period when the system existed you know, it was stable, there was very high economic growth, and it was very broad-based economic growth. Inequality was the lowest in history. Economic growth was the highest in world history before or since. Anyway, this offshore system came along, and these huge volumes of money, it was easier for banks to create money. Banks can create, the banking system can create money, and it creates it in huge quantities. And it was very, it was much harder for them to do it in the States. They came to London, they could do it. And these huge volumes of capital began to sort of spew out and they started, um, other countries followed suit and they all came, kind of became interconnected in this sort of network of fast capital movements across the world through the British tax havens, through Luxembourg, through the city of London. And this system eventually kind of was a battering ram that smashed down the, the Bretton Woods system.
1: Because I was wondering, you kind of jumped to, okay, and then these offshore havens just came in. And so was there, were there like people or were there countries or companies that were, specifically kind of setting these up. I've often wondered too, like, how how did we get to this point where things are so bad and there's such dramatic inequality and, you know, the resources of the world are like in the hands of so few and exploited so massively. Can you define like a certain like a, a real point where this started to happen?
0: Yes, it was really so the offshore the, the Euro dollar market was a big part of it, but another big part of it was the growth of the the global system of tax havens. And Britain was among the biggest players, if not the biggest player in this system. And what Britain had was these overseas territories, which include the Cayman Islands, Gibraltar, Bermuda, a few others, and crown dependencies, Jersey, Guernsey, and the Isle of Man, what you might call fragments of the British Empire. When the British Empire fell apart in the 1950s and 1960s, these little territories remained sort of part British with some independent politics, but an awful lot of control from London. And all the tax havens the british tax havens in what i call the spider the spider web became fantastic mechanisms for the city of london because it effectively cast a financial net around the world and so you have a tax haven out in the in the caribbean the cayman islands for example would be a great place for attracting dirty money from brazil from latin america jersey would be great for att- attracting dirty money from europe from africa so each tax haven around the world was kind of bringing money in and that money, these places would generally be just sort of booking centers where the money would be legally registered. And once that had happened, then all the law firms and the banks in the city of London became involved in these British places and the legal system was set up to support them. So huge amounts of money and this money would often flow into London or it flow through London or it would be handled by London bankers and intermediaries who'd make huge amounts of money. So there was this kind of cascade of money into, into Britain from, and it's, it, you know, some people describe it as a sort of second version of colonialism. So you had the collapse of empire and Britain, you know, the city of London kind of replaced the old real empire with armies and stuff with this new kind of system for hoovering money up from around the world, shrouding it in secrecy to attract the money and then handling it and getting rich um, in Britain.
1: So it's kind of an economic empire, I guess. And it's and it sounds like the money flows through these countries, but it doesn't actually stick around in them. So it, it doesn't benefit the countries that are actually operating in this way in any tangible form. Or what and what kind of amounts? When you say huge amounts, what what are we talking about?
0: We're talking trillions. I mean, various estimates have been made. They range between seven and a half trillion and forty trillion U.S. dollars. How do you put that in context? Well. One way of thinking about it is, is putting dollar bills end to end. If you take the seven and a half trillion dollar bills end to end, you have got a line that stretches along the Earth's orbit around the sun. If you're talking about 40 trillion, obviously that's several times along the Earth's orbit around the sun. That, that is how much money is sitting offshore outside the reach of effective taxation and the rule of law and so on. One of the points about making that comparison about Earth's orbit around the Sun is that this is clearly not money in briefcases being shifted across border. This is about the international banking system. This is about global finance. It is much bigger than than the traditional idea of you know shady people. You know, I've, I've spoken to people who've carried suitcases across borders, but it's it's small stuff. This is every major bank is involved in these um, activities. The big four accounting firms are putting together the nuts and bolts of this system, the big law firms, um, particularly the the offshore law firms, are all assembling, have assembled this amazing infrastructure to help the rich people and large multinationals get out from under the rules that they don't like and leaving everybody else to pay the taxes for them and to su- submit to the rules. So it's profoundly dangerous for democracy because you have one set of rules for the rich and powerful and another set of rules for everybody else. And of course, it's profoundly increases in inequality in a huge way because this is a, a machine. It's a financial technology for transferring huge amounts of wealth from poor to rich.
1: It's really interesting at this point in the conversation, I think, globally, because people are really starting to wake up to the way this system is operating and to have the kind of discussions that people are having here at this event today. And I mean, you were talking also about wealth extraction.
0: Yeah, the idea of wealth extraction is absolutely fundamental to this. And and I draw the, the great comparison is between wealth extraction and wealth creation so you know a company with a factory building stuff that's wealth creation agriculture growing things from the soil wealth creation financial engineering to extract wealth from an an existing company which is the kind of thing that for example private equity firms specialize in that's wealth extraction and that's harmful if we're looking on a on a global level um, this system is extracting wealth from africa Um, Using financial engineering techniques. But the interesting thing about this is that this system is also extracting wealth from our own societies in the West. It is eroding our tax systems, it is eroding our financial regulations, it is sucking money out in myriad ways from productive companies, from productive enterprise. And so, in the past, we had, you know, if we worry about, for example, poverty in Africa. There'd be a kind of altruistic way of looking at it. Well, we must give them something, and and it's a, you know there's a slightly sort of relationship of dependency and condescension going on there. With this problem, we have a shared agenda. We ordinary people in the West, ordinary people in Africa, we have a shared agenda. We're fighting against transnational networks of plunder that involve African dictators, big four accounting firms, the world's biggest banks, and you know offshore enablers. So this is a very different phenomenon. And you know, if we're worried about what's happening in poorer countries, for example, once we see that there's this shared agenda, we have the possibility for really starting to do something about it because this is hurting us too. So I think there is, you know, there is hope as anger grows, particularly after the global financial crisis. I think as people wake up, as people begin to understand how toxic and dangerous this system is, um, I think there is the potential for political change.
1: I really hope so. And I mean, it seems like such an interesting time because people are kind of turning around saying, hang on, I've been told all my life that I have to work hard. I take home my paycheck, pay my taxes. I try and save. I try and keep a roof over my family's head. Maybe I have have enough money to not have to just have a state pension. And then all of that gets swept away with the financial crisis. Or there are just people who are gaming the system so phenomenally who are operating on a completely different set of rules in a completely different playing field which is in no way level, I think that that sort of anger and also people being informed enough and understanding enough because the complexity is really a part of you know, the way it's set up and it's also something that's been off-putting, I guess, for it to become part of a general sort of public discourse.
0: Well, I think on one level it is incredibly complicated and that is it's designed that way. They set up these extraordinarily complicated structures in order to fox the tax authorities, to fox the forces of law, law and order so they can't understand what's going on. On another level, though, it's very simple, and I think people see it, they feel it in their gut. You know, one rule for, the, for those people, another rule for everybody else. And, you know, I like to think of it in, in terms of, you know, you go to the supermarket and you've got a long line for the checkout. Next to the checkout, though, there's another long line. You have to step through a velvet rope with bouncers. There's another line uh, where people are going through very fast um, and they're paying half price. And there's no good reason for that. And I think people people can see that going on and they don't like it, particularly since the global financial crisis. This is creating, feeding anger in all our populations. And all the political changes we're seeing now with Brexit and with the election of Donald Trump, these are responses to this kind of thing, the rigging of the system so that there isn't a level playing field. Not just with tax havens. There are other things like monopolies and market power where big firms like Amazon are just slaughtering their competition and chucking millions of people out of jobs. know, there are other factors as well, but this, you know, the offshore system of tax havens is an absolutely central part of of this these political changes we can all see and feel now.
1: And I mean in terms of personal action, like what kind of strategies or activities could people actually get involved with or enact in their own life, in their own community? Are there, you know, can you put pressure on governments to change policy? Because it is all so embedded with the, the system of kind of global government. Um how do you see actually shifting that to a new a new or you know back to a more functional way of of being in society
0: because this is a such a multifaceted system it's very difficult to identify particular things that can be done I can speak in, in generalities I think the first thing is obviously to vote there are parties emerging that are actually promising credibly to do something about this stuff there is also political action you can take right to your local representatives I used to be a little bit dismissive of these movements for kind of localism I used to you know, this is kind of small time stuff that isn't going to make a difference. But I do think if we start to think about keeping keeping things in local communities, if we can put pressure on, you know, our local authorities not to outsource their functions to, you know, an American private equity firm or an infrastructure fund based in a tax haven, which is happening all the time in Australia and the UK, all over the place. And to start You know, sourcing things locally, I think that is another thing that could be very important in keeping money circulating in local communities, keeping it inside the country. I think that is an alternative way of thinking about things. It's more difficult to imagine a, a new Bretton Woods architecture emerging where extreme capital controls are placed between countries and money can't flow in or out. But I think what you can do is you can put in place policies to discourage a lot of this money flowing in a lot of people think this money comes in it's great we like the money but if you look at the corrupting effect it's having on our countries and all the other aspects of the finance curse which is the rise of financial players damaging our economies and our societies in so many ways then we can start really looking to change things
1: i mean i think um, just to follow on that point of local local engaged civil society kind of participation. Looking in sort of Athens and also Catalonia, there was really interesting sort of social social capital or almost a barter exchange, but set up so it's sort of formalized like there's fair co-op and fair coin so that it's people actually having agreements to trade with within the local community. So it's actually bringing the flow of value back to that community. In terms
0: of local money circulating, you know, I, I, I think these new systems, I mean, one has to be careful that they're not created in abusive ways it's very easy for that to happen but i think one thing that would be good to push back against is always going to the big multinational private equity big bank hedge fund operative who claim they have all the knowledge to do something in your community when there are actually much better alternatives where the money circulates locally where Mm -hmm it doesn't get, you know, sent offshore to tax havens. I think that's, you know, that those outward flows from our communities are immensely damaging. If we can find some ways to keep, you know, local procurement and things like that, keep buying local, I think that can that can go a long way to helping.
1: Absolutely. Stop buying on Amazon, right? Yeah. <laughs> I support your local bookshop. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Um, if you have a local bookshop, um, send an email to them when you want a book and go and collect them and have a cup of coffee there and chat with the bookshop owner, which is... There's a lovely bookshop near where I live here in Berlin. There's a lot of bookshops here. Don't buy on Amazon.
1: And also it creates connections in like your local environment, your local sort of community. And um, yeah, I think we, we all need more of that.